This morning we're going to consider repentance for sin. Repentance for sin. Our passage is 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 and 9. Just two verses. We can turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 now and look at those two verses. The Apostle Peter said, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This morning we're going to consider repentance for sins, which is something we tend to do most Sundays in this place. Look at repentance. That comes out in the preaching to varying degrees each Sunday. Before we go any further, what is repentance? It's a word you hear a lot about, but um, people might struggle to define what repentance is. Repentance is a change of mind. That's what it means. It's a change of mind and it comes as a consequence of being convicted of sins against a holy and righteous God. Repentance is attended by sorrow for committing sin. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, Godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. So you've got godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. Salvation from sin. When people truly repent, the ensuing despair is only lifted when the gospel of Christ rescues them. It is through the gospel that God reaches down and pulls repentant sinners out of the pit of despair, lifts them up from their place of sorrow, quenches their thirst, refreshes their soul, floods them with his peace, makes them his own holy and blessed children through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he sets them free. Putting it negatively, without repentance, there is No salvation from sin. Unsurprisingly, the Bible abounds with passages where sinners are saved and repentance is clearly evident. For example, there in in Luke chapter 18, there's the parable of Jesus, where Jesus talks about two men in the temple. One of them was a religious Jew, a Pharisee, And he said thus to himself, in other words, he wasn't even praying really, he was just talking to himself and bragging, boasting. But anyway, he said, "I I thank you God that I'm not like other people, I'm not an extortioner, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not like him over here, talking about the other man who we'll come to in a minute. So he was boasting about how wonderful he was. And then he went on to say, that he fasts twice a week. Well, okay. 
and he tithes of everything that he has. So he was justifying himself. No hint of repentance. He was commending himself to God. It was like attending an interview for a job. Obviously, when you go to an interview, you want to sell yourself to the interviewer. Well, he thought he could sell himself to God. How ridiculous that is. But then it was the turn of the other man, a tax collector. A much despised tax collector. He couldn't even look up to heaven. He simply beat his chest as he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was pleading for mercy, for forgiveness for his sins. He wasn't selling himself to God at all. He couldn't even look towards God. Couldn't look to heaven. And Jesus said that he went home justified. Not the boaster, but the tax collector went home justified. In other words, he went home saved from his sins. Very easy to see in that parable who the one with the godly sorrow was, the tax collector. And there's others. There's a a woman who washed the Lord's feet with her tears that we've just read not long ago. She was crying. She washed the Lord's feet with her tears of repentance. It doesn't say tears of repentance in the text, but it's very clear that they were tears of repentance, of a broken and contrite heart. And people took issue with that. A tax, uh, sorry, a Pharisee, a religious Jew again, he took issue with that. What's Jesus allowing this woman to wash his feet with her tears and kiss his feet? What's going on here? And then Jesus spoke to that Pharisee and said, spoke about two people who owed someone some money. One owed ten times as much as the other. And the question was, who, oh, they were both let off. None of them could pay the debt. Who loved the creditor most out of those people who owed him money? And the Pharisee answered correctly, the one who owed the most, obviously, would have loved the creditor most. He was let off ten times as much. And then Jesus turned to the woman again, the one who had been washing his feet with her tears. She loved much and she was forgiven much. And I've often thought about that. How much are we forgiven when we become Christians? Can we quantify our sin? We can't. If we are truly Christians, we should know that we are sin. We don't just sin, we are sin. From the time of conception to the time that we die, we are continuously sin. When, we, when we're being honest with ourselves. So how do you quantify that? But the person who loves Jesus more, shall we say, is the one who recognises just how much they have been saved from their sin, if you like. When they think about Jesus hanging upon that cross, they've got a clearer picture 
of what he was carrying in his body than someone else who perhaps hasn't advanced beyond thinking, well, I've told a few fibs in my time. I stole some sweeties once. We are sinners through and through, each one of us. Everything we think and say and do is stained through with sin. And when we begin to appreciate that, then we begin to love Jesus more and more as we thank him for that Calvary love towards us. And that tears, the tears of repentance, they don't end either. Or they shouldn't do. Even when there is no more condemnation for you, even when you've been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would say that as time goes on, you grieve even more when you sin against your God who loved you and who gave himself for you at the cross. Not less. Unlike the Apostle Paul, you say, oh wretched man that I am, as you thank God through Jesus Christ who loved you. You've got the two things going on all the time. Wretched man! But then you praise God for Jesus. Let's turn to our text, 2 Peter, chapter 3 and verse 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. In past weeks, we have considered the false teachers who scoff at any talk of a second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that such people are willingly ignorant of various scriptures that point to that great event and consequently they bring swift uh, swift destruction upon themselves because they willingly ignore those verses that speak of Jesus coming again. And they are false teachers. Peter's attention is now turned from the false teachers to the readers whom he warns not to be ignorant. We've already looked at the ignorance, the ignorance of the false teachers, that willful ignorance. Now Peter's saying to the readers, don't you be ignorant. That includes us. We are not to be ignorant about the second coming of Jesus. Peter then said that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. We see that in the verse there. What is that supposed to mean? Let us first of all consider what it doesn't mean when Peter says one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. It does not mean that people can take take each of the six literal days <clears throat> of creation and expand each of those days into a thousand years or perhaps even a million years or better still, a billion years and end up with some evolutionary lie. As if God, when he talks about days, he doesn't really mean days. 
Neither does it mean that Jesus will reign on the earth for a thousand years when he comes again. So, what does Peter mean when he says, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day? God, who knows what a day is. God, who invented days. God, who invented time, created time. What does he mean? The answer to that is given in verse 9. Let's have a look at verse 9 in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us ward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. First of all, let us think about the people who had been fed poisonous lies by those false teachers and who, the false teachers who very skillfully rubbished the second coming of Jesus. The hearers may well have started to believe those lies. There's no reason to think those false teachers were idiots. They were probably very skillful speakers. Deceivers. And people heard those lies day in and day out. Maybe they started to believe those lies. Hence the warning here, do not be ignorant about the concerning the promise. Don't fall for those lies. But you maybe you can get it. The hearers were hearing that and 30 years had gone by since Jesus had returned to his glory having fulfilled God's law and having paid the price for sin at the cross. And still, there was no sign of his second coming after 30 long years. Perhaps the scoffers were right after all. Perhaps Jesus wasn't coming again. And here we are now, about 2,000 years later, and still no Jesus. Still No second coming. Again, maybe the false teachers were right after all. However, by saying that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day, Peter was saying that God is long-suffering, that he is patiently slow in bringing about the second coming of his son and final judgment by him. And he's patiently slow by reason, uh, for the reason that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what the, the, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day is. God is slow. And he's waiting for people to come to repentance. Patiently waiting. Looking at verse 9 in isolation of anything else in the Bible, you and many other people might conclude that God is patiently waiting for as long as it takes in the hope that everyone in the whole world will come to repentance, that they will make a decision for Christ, that they will sign a decision slip, that they will repeat the sinner's prayer. that they will be saved 
that they will go to heaven when they die. And God's waiting for that to happen. However, that kind of thinking is not scriptural. Certainly everyone in the world has a duty to repent. God doesn't say, pretty please, repent. For example, when the Apostle Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill in Athens, he said, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device, and the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth everyone all men everywhere to repent. I'll say that last bit again. God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Likewise, everyone has a duty to believe the gospel of Christ. There's no pretty please about it. You have a duty to believe the gospel. However, the fact of the matter is that only a tiny minority of people ever come to repentance and receive Jesus as their saviour from sin. The rest will perish in everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The vast majority of this world's population will end up in everlasting fire because they have never truly repented and received Jesus as their saviour from sin. At this point, it's as well to remind ourselves whom the Apostle Peter was writing to. If you look at verse 1 in chapter 3, this second epistle, beloved. So that's the first thing. He calls them beloved. I now write unto you, second epistle, so that obviously implies a first epistle. Let's read it again. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Well, they've got pure minds as well. Who in here has got a pure mind? The only way I can claim to have a pure mind is through faith in Jesus, a mind that has been sprinkled and purified by him. But these people are brethren, beloved rather, beloved, and Paul makes mention of this being the second epistle and they're people with pure minds. He calls them beloved. But what about the first epistle, this being the second epistle? Well, let's turn to it. I'll I'll turn to it anyway. 1 Peter. And I'll just read to you the second verse of 1 Peter. He says in that epistle, elect, this is the people he's writing to, elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So there you have it. The people who Peter was writing to, the the beloved, they are the elect of God, chosen by God. These people with pure minds. They're chosen by God for salvation. And the Apostle Paul had something very interesting to say about the elect of God, including himself. When he said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through to 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he have chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. This is important. Let me read that last bit to you, or or summarise it for you. If you're a Christian, you are chosen by God, elect. And you're chosen by God in love. It's an everlasting love. God has loved you with an everlasting love, and he has chosen you for salvation according to the good pleasure of his will. It was his will that he should do those things, love you, choose you, save you by his grace, through faith in his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he sent into the world to pay the price for your sin. If you are a Christian, God chose you according to the good pleasure of his will in the fullness of time. The Holy Spirit raised you who were dead in your sins and he drew you with loving kindness to his son. That loving kindness of God that reaches into eternity, how is it seen? Because it can be seen, it's not invisible. The loving kindness of God can be seen in the fact that you repented. You came to repentance and you trusted in Jesus. Those two things would never ever have happened if it were not for God's intervention. Indeed, his choosing you before the foundation of the world. You were dead in your sins. A dead person doesn't repent. The Holy Spirit raised you up. You beat your chest or whatever. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is a grace of God, if that is you. And then believing in Jesus, the one whom this world rejects, the one whom this world turns its face from, the one whom this world despises, the one whom this world esteems not, you received him as your saviour from sin and your Lord. That is a work of divine grace. So, when we read that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, in verse 9 there, of 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter was speaking to the elect of God, the beloved, with their pure minds. And you can be sure that God is not willing that any should perish, that in accordance with the good pleasure of his will, they most certainly will come to repentance and to saving faith in Jesus, believing that he fulfilled the law's demands on their behalf and he carried away their sins at the cross. This is the will of God. God is not willing that his elect should perish. This is in accordance with the good pleasure of his will. The assurance comes to us 
from the mouth of the incarnate Son of God in John chapter 6, verse 37 and 39, where he said, All that the Father giveth me, all that the Father giveth me, talking about the elect here, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. There's no doubt about it. In the fullness of time, you who are chosen by God, dearly beloved of God, you will come to Jesus. You come to Jesus. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will. There we have God's will again. God is not willing that any should perish. Jesus came down, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which have sent me, that of all which he have given me, this is the elect again, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Jesus talking about his second coming there. When Jesus comes again, he will raise up every single one of the elect of God. As we finish, we can consider the situation as it now is in the world. Despite God commanding that all men repent, there are nevertheless many churches, I've I've become more and more convinced of this, many churches where the so-called pastors and preachers have turned to entertainment and showbiz to the exclusion of calling on sinners to repent and believe the gospel. It has to be acknowledged that some of those churches are drawing in high numbers of people, but the reality is that they are being filled with and corrupted by professing believers who have never repented. They have never turned from their sin and therefore they have never truly trusted in Jesus as their saviour from sin. Why do I say that? Because godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. If they haven't repented, they haven't received Jesus as their saviour. The leaders of those churches may seek to justify their position and they do do this. They point out that repentance is a grace of God and as such there is no need to preach repentance because it is something that God does. To prove their point, they may even point out that you won't find the words repent or repentance anywhere in John's Gospel or in any of his three epistles. And so they conclude that the Apostle John did not preach repentance. There is an example that I can think of off the top of my head where someone comes to faith in Jesus in John's Gospel and although the word repent or repentance is not mentioned, she clearly did repent. The Samaritan woman, when Jesus said to her, go and get your husband, she couldn't. She'd been married five times and the man that she was now living with wasn't her husband. And when Jesus said that, that clearly induced repentance in that woman. Jesus knew that she wasn't married when he said, go and get your husband. He did that for a reason. And that was to work repentance in her.
However, these the, the pastors and teachers in the churches today that I'm talking about, they seem to be ignorant and perhaps willingly ignorant of many other books of the Bible apart from John's Gospel and his three epistles where sinners are called upon to repent even though repentance is entirely a grace of God. It's like saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That too is entirely a grace of God. I've already said that. Repentance and faith in Jesus. Graces of God. It's not something that we can do for ourselves. Yet, it is the duty of preachers to call on people to repent and to believe the gospel, despite both of them being graces of God. God works through human agency. That becomes very clear. Clearly, it pleases the God of grace to extend his grace to people through the preaching of repentance and forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. And that is precisely what Jesus commanded his apostles to do before he ascended to his glory. We see that at the end of John, uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 46 and 47, where Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Listen carefully to this. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name should be preached in his name. I think that it is nothing short of scandalous that repentance is not being preached in many churches nowadays for fear of upsetting people and losing them and losing their financial gifts. How different it is now compared with the day of Pentecost when people when the Apostle Peter said to the assembled Jews, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And how different it is now to the Lord Jesus Christ, who in Mark chapter 1, verse 15 said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Finally, when you read that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day, you can be absolutely sure that however long it is before Jesus comes again, he most certainly is coming again, and he is coming in judgment. That will not happen until every single one of the elect of God have come to repentance and saving faith in Jesus and Jesus himself will raise them up and they will receive from him their heavenly inheritance. Therefore, I say unto you, repent and believe the gospel. Amen.